This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. with me and you'll be in a world some imagination you will find something shines you'll see you would actually hate the Wonka factory because you hate all candy that's not chocolate. Do I never want to go there. Break that down for me, like that bit that you're doing and like what you're trying to accomplish with it. Well, first, let me um, say welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I just had a thought that like this week, um, you're going to tell me a story or tell me a story about a story that mm-hmm. takes place in a time that's like sort of long, far away in a different land than I've ever lived in. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to, I wanted to honor that um, emotional state. So what you're saying is anybody who's ever lived in like Spain or Istanbul is living in a land of pure imagination where no, nothing is real. And no, nothing- <laughs> that's good. Good, good dig. I am uh-huh. saying that I have to use my imagination to go there. Because I have been to Europe twice. I went to London and Amsterdam. They were great. I had a good time. Nice. Not the same trip. Two separate trips. Um, and I've never Still been. Nice. I've never been west of Central Time. So what I'm saying is that I am not a very um, traveled traveled traveler. You never been to Pacific Time? I've never been to Pacific Time. I mean, I've been all over Pacific Time. <laughs> what is that? I've experienced all the seconds and minutes. <laughs> I've just like I've been over there a lot. Yeah, well, that's where they make places. iPhones. It's where they make iPhones. It, I went to Portland a couple times. Um, I went to LA twice and like kind of hated it, but also <laughs> I was hanging out almost exclusively in the part of town that was near the convention center. So I think people from LA even would agree with me sure. on that assessment. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about Louis L'Amour's The Walking Drum or Louis L'Amour. Louis L'Amour. Does I'm going to go Louis L'Amour. Uh, let's go with Louis L'Amour. Because um, the main character's name is Maturon <laughs> Kerbouchard. Okay. So I looked up the pronunciation of the descent. first name. French descent. So. Yeah, the, the pronunciation of the first name I could find in the second name. The last name appears to be made up. Yes. But um, one character, like, or a couple characters, like twice in the book, call him Matt. So I think we're just going to call him Matt for okay. sure. Okay. Okay. Um, but uh, first, can you tell me a little bit about this great guy from France named Louis? Yes. Um, the book was one of our uh, recommended to us by one of our patron supporters, Patreon supporters, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. Um, Louis Dearborn Lamour uh, was born in 1908, died in 1988. Um, he was born in North Dakota, one of seven kids. His dad was a large animal vet, a local politician, and farm equipment broker. 
a large animal vet. So how like how what's the what's the cutoff? Do you think like, like is a big dog a large animal or does it have to be like bears? I bet if someone's like, oh my big dog's sick, help me, Lu- Louis's dad, and he's like, Mister um, Lamore, I. Okay, I treated a bear like this once. I think mm-hmm. is probably what he says. It's probably like so. You don't you don't know what the cutoff probably is. Probably like goats. <laughs> sure, goats. I would think. <laughs> yeah, they're exactly the cutoff between when a small animal becomes a large animal. I think you're right. I think that makes sense. Yeah, uh, goats can't get bigger or smaller. That's why you use them as. Is there a special reference. name for horse vets that we just don't know? Hor- horse doctors, probably horse vets, equine mm-hmm. doctors. Ooh, yeah, equinarians um <laughs> louis louis the louis lamore our author this week he read a bunch of books at his local library as a kid growing up in north dakota support your local libraries um mm. and the family moved all over the country um for for a period of time and then louis actually then went off he did he i think he dropped out of high school in like 10th grade or something like that um he moved around the southwest and the pacific northwest doing all sorts of jobs working as a mine assessor he had a really good boxing record he was a boxing coach and booker really yeah i think he was like 51 and 8 or something like local boxing or like what's the i don't really understand uh i don't know if there are like boxing leagues i like i don't know who's keeping track of those of those points of those boxing points yeah because i don't know the history of when like boxing as i know it on hbo becomes like the boxing league oh, like man like 90 percent what i know about boxing comes from super punch out so like <laughs> i'm not the one to ask uh according to louis lamore's website he did spend time hoboing around the country uh sleeping in hobo jungles <laughs> which okay sure you know my favorite one of my favorite words is bindle yeah, it's which a is good the word. name of the little sack on the end of the stick that it's that, very like, cartoon hobos carry around, and you don't get to use it enough. No, it's very romantic. Um, romantic because like people because like fanny packs have made a comeback now, right? I feel like mm. you could do a bindle and it'd be like a combo fanny pack selfie stick that would really like oh today's teens God. would really love Let's it. Let's go on Shark Tank right now. <laughs> Um, so Louis ended up settling in Oklahoma, I think in the late twenties or early thirties, um, with his folks, he'd been around the world to a couple of different places. Um, and then he settled down and started trying to write. He was published in like poems and short stories. He was publishing articles in the WPA guidebook to Oklahoma, which Hmm. I just like, remember that time when the government was like, Hey, everybody needs a job. Hey, all the guys who are good at writing need jobs too. Like, let's give them stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Like, man, cool times. Um, he wrote a lot of, when he started writing fiction, he was writing a lot of adventure stories, mostly like maritime adventures. He had a Ooh. mercenary sea captain named Jim Mayo, uh, which he later used as a pseudonym for a few stories. Jim Mayo? Uh-huh. Uh, do you think Jim Mayo, like when he was going to make love to a beautiful woman, do you think he'd be like hold the mayo <laughs> i sure i feel like i'm distracting you a lot as you tell me about Louis this Lamore, no this is, is good i'm fine. having a good time i'm using my imagination um mm-hmm. he did serve in world war ii in europe and when he came back he lamented the fact 
that adventure stories, the adventure story market was kind of drying up and people wanted westerns. So he started right, and he liked westerns, but he just kind of had to shift gears. Um, yeah. So he starts publishing in pulp western magazines. He uh, took over writing some Hopalong Cassidy novels under the name Tex Burns. Which nice, is a great good, name. Good. He didn't start. Ninety like percent of the pictures of him I could find were him in a cowboy hat too. So he really like took this identity to heart. I yes, think. Uh, a short story that he wrote went on to become a film starring John Wayne called Hondo. Uh, and then after the success of that, Louis Lemoore started publishing under his own name uh, with his first novel, Westward the Tide. He ultimately in his life wrote over a hundred novels, like one hundred and one, I think. Um, most so I think he wrote 89 novels oh, sure. and then a couple nonfiction books okay, okay. and some short story collections. Okay. But yeah, over well over 100 books. A bunch total. of them were in the were, were like concerning the Sackett family, which is this like loose interconnected also almost like Chaucerian chronicle of a family moving from the Atlantic coast to the to the like Pacific Northwest. Sure. Um he received the Congressional Gold Medal in 1982. He was the first novelist to ever do so. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1984. Oh, dang. Oh, dang. Um, and, yeah, I mean, his his big Western co- like collection of novels, that a lot of people regard them for their accuracy. Um, I found a quote from his website from his son about this whole deal of ac- historical accuracy, which was like... A lot of press was like, oh, this man really knows his stuff. He really researches everything, and everything's perfect down to the, like, all the rivets on their pants or whatever. Uh-huh. And his son was like, yeah, most of the time. <laughs> um, what, did, what did he have to say? Dad did have an extensive library, but it wasn't all about the West is where he gets all his facts from. Uh, he just liked learning. He had everything from name your baby books to technical journals from NASA. He had a huge collection of topographic maps, many of them from the earliest days that were published. Besides actually going to the location where he'd want to set a story, these were his secret sauce. Old topos have a good deal of information on them that is left out of the modern ones, Indian ruins, old roads, countryside, now covered by cities. So that's a thing that I that I found a couple articles referencing that his... Western novels, and it sounds like he even had other resources for some of the other books that he wrote, like really had a sense of the land and really Mm -hmm. where things were taking place. Um, yeah, so he could what a lot of what he wrote could be classified as westerns, but he preferred often to call his books like frontier stories mm -hmm. instead, which you know, in America. The frontier means the Western frontier, which means cowboys, which yes. means Westerns. Yes. So, um, but yeah, this this book, I think, tries to capture a lot of that like restlessness and, and rovingness that you get in a Western. And to a certain extent, like the, the lawlessness mm, okay. that characterizes those kinds of stories. But it's happening in 12th century Europe. Huh. And not in America. And I think he also he also did at least one sci-fi, sci-fi story, story yeah. too, right? Which is, you know, the final frontier. <laughs> Space, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he said, uh, if you write a book about a bygone period that lies east of the Mississippi River, then it's a historical novel. If it's west of the Mississippi, it's a western. There's no sense to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he has... Um, so, and we'll talk about this more when we're talking about the book, but he, he has some, he has a lot of thoughts about 
the kinds of histories that we like to focus on sure here in here in america and in like um, english fiction um this is from kind of the the afterword to um to the walking drum he says unhappily history as presented in our schools virtually ignores two-thirds of the world confining itself to limited areas around the mediterranean to western europe and north america of China, Indian, and the Muslim world, almost nothing is said, yet their contribution to our civilization was enormous, and they are now powers with which we must deal both today and tomorrow, and which it would be well for us to understand, which feels pretty prescient. Yep. Even if he's writing this in 1984, it feels pretty prescient. Yep. Yeah, I was doing a little research on historical fiction and what we consider historical fiction, and certainly checking my own biases of like what I think of, and it's mostly like revolutionary and civil war fiction. Yeah, like that, that we just did. Johnny Tremaine yeah. gives us, I think, some good comparison points historical as a as a market genre we tend to think of it here in america and and certainly in like england um like going back to sir walter scott and then even like tolstoy a little bit um i'm glad that louis lamore was even kind of shouting it out because you can also trace it back to like you can trace it back to the greeks but then there's also stuff like romance of the three kingdoms which is like one of the big classic works of the chinese literary canon and it it is historical fiction because it's like written a thousand years after all the stuff happened. So uh, it's not just a historical record or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. The Historical Novel Society, which was founded in 1997, um, has a really broad definition, which is okay. <laughs> fiction that is set in the past before the author's lifetime and experience. And so there's no, there are no specifics about like attempts to be accurate or, you know, anything? they like, is do that just have kind of like, assumed or they have what? reviews and they give out awards. So I think that's when they drill down on like what's good historical fiction or not, but they really want to take all comers, I think. That's fine. Um, just to kind of see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I would be interested uh, to hear from anybody else who's read some Lamore westerns or is a big fan of like western novels because i think that is an example of um american historical fiction that can like romanticize a part of our history that is uh unsavory in a lot of ways yeah it can't i feel like that's one side of the coin and then the um like cormac mccarthy like lol nothing matters everybody's horrible vibe (laughs) is the other side of it like i in and and we're going to again we're going to talk about this a little bit but when i actually when i started researching lamore and the kind of work he did that it, that kind of made this book click for me okay. in a way that it wasn't clicking but yeah i feel like he's a version uh like his his writing and this and this book was sort of a version of mccarthy that's like more interested in the human bits of it and like the emotional bits of it and and the bits that are about how humans relate to each other yeah not that there's none of that well no in cormac McCarthy, mccarthy's interested feels... in how all of that is broken and will never be and repaired bad. yeah <laughs> uh yeah i mean lamore's son on his website i do recommend going to his website because it like welcomes you with quote the same sense of adventure excitement and anticipation that lamore wrote with <laughs> to their website 
And I want to, like, I've already gotten some guff about not liking McCarthy enough, so I'll cop to only reading one of his sure, books sure. and, like, not liking it at all. But <laughs> so well, well, if it seems unflattering in either direction, like, that's why. That's fair. Uh, his son yeah. just said, like, he was like, if he had a if he had a belief system, he was an optimist, which is very, like, generous reading of, like, a complicated human being um, and, and kind of general reading of a person. But, like... To contrast him with someone like McCarthy is really interesting because I think they could probably be coming at some of the same stuff. And what you're saying is like, yeah, he believes that people are probably pretty good. So let's dive into that. And McCarthy's like, no, everyone's terrible. Let's dive into that. Well, and and both authors, I think, share uh, when you get into like the action sequences and the fighting and the war, like they both share a very like visceral graphic depiction of things like oh, I, I, sure. again okay. i think mccarthy leans into it a little bit more than lamore did in this book but you like those bits draw you in in a way that feels similar okay. to me well but, um the, the stuff that you get in between those fighting bits is what feels a little bit different that was not that was not a thing i was prepared to really like wrap my brain around this book in terms of thinking it as a western but just in a different spot so let's start talking about the book and you kind of unpack how you think lamore is tackling this entirely different era okay so let's do well hmm. let's first start i think with um so this was a patreon recommendation yep and um i want to start with hannah's like reasoning for recommending this book we don't always do that but sometimes when i'm having a little bit of trouble getting into something it's like one the author research was helpful because that's just good context and two to understand why the person recommended it can help me yeah like get into a different headspace so uh, she says if you haven't already you should read louis lamore's book the walking drum it's a non-western and it's a delightful adventure set in europe and asia during the 14th century where a lot of famous people and inventions are happening the protagonist is delightfully flawed and it's one of my favorite books of all time smiley face so i think it's it's i don't want to like correct you right off the bat it is the 12th century but that's pretty close <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> point point being that she says non-Western. I think that it's still important that Western is part of that. It's like a, it's a yeah. non-Western Western. Almost. Okay, cool. And um, and she likes the delightfully flawed protagonist. So that's that's kind of why I want to focus this this early part of the of the thing around because I don't really want to get into a blow by blow plot synopsis. Um, so I'll just give you the general, the shape of the thing. Okay. Um, so we got this guy, Matron Kubuchard. <laughs> yep. Whose name is Matt. Here to, like, Here to for Matt so that Matt. you don't have to cough through the rest of the show. Hereafter, I guess, is the word I actually wanted. Oh, um, sure. So the book begins with Matt as a, like a barely adult, like a very, very young adult. <laughs> a tween? Who, it's just, he's just like six, 17 or 18 or something. He's like an adult, but barely. Okay. Um, but he is like, he is in kind of the burned out shell of his own home and he's fighting off this guy and he runs and he jumps on a ship and he just, and he just barely escapes from this guy. And this sets off a long road of adventures. <laughs> Um, where he has to one grow up himself, mm. two learn a lot of stuff, three get to know a lot of people, four <laughs> get to know a lot of women, and five find out what happened to his dad. 
this <laughs> who's okay. a pirate I, I am going to implore you for specifics on some of these because you've described a number of books i think in the last 30 seconds it's a long book so okay. it contains many books <laughs> Okay. So the the big thing to know about Matt is that he's a jack of all trades. Like what comes naturally to him. Well, okay, he's a, he's a jack of all trades and he's been set up to be this way by his dad who is a pirate, which means he's traveled all over the place. Okay. And so while a lot of Europe is in the throes of like dark ages pre-Renaissance Christianity. Sure. Which Lamour has almost nothing good to say about. <laughs> yeah. Um, he knows, like, Matt knows a little bit more about, like, customs around the world, and he knows just enough to be kind of aware of what he doesn't know, and he wants to fill that void. Okay. Like, he wants to learn more. So a big thing that drives him in all of his travels and that, that I think keeps him from really settling down in any specific place, aside from trying to find his dad, is that there is just more knowledge out there and the more he learns, the more he knows that, you know, that he does, he can't, he doesn't know everything. Like he, he, he has a lot of imposter syndrome. Like he's regularly like the best doctor or the best like geographer or the best, um, like fighter in any given group of people he's in. But he always is so aware of the stuff that he doesn't know that he's always like, yeah, man, I'm just like, <laughs> I hope these people don't find out that I'm a fraud That's because really cool. I really don't know as much as I feel like I should. The uh, The New York Times obit gave this kind of thing a shout out. It said, the typical Lamour hero was a strapping young man in his late teens or early 20s, a resilient uh-huh. and somewhat romantic fighter built on, built, uh, excuse me, bent on self-improvement. And then like names a bunch of dudes in the Western books who all carry around like law books and Plutarch and juvenile in the original yeah. Latin, like while you're like, on the Mississippi. Like, check, check, chicken, okay. check. Like <laughs> Matt speaks like Latin and Greek and can write in Sanskrit and Persian and, and yeah, knows a lot of, I think, a lot of stuff. I think at this point in history, like Thomas Aquinas, like just brought Aristotle back to Europe and was like, hey guys, I found this. This guy seems smart. Yeah, there, there's like one point. So, um, so Matt is his first the okay so the thing I don't like about Matt that much is that he is basically infallible and mostly invulnerable um you get He's one, superman you get one bit of vulnerability like super early in the book where he jumps on this pirate ship just to escape this guy who's pursuing him and he makes the mistake of showing the people that he has gold to pay for his passage so because he's some like 16 year old 17 year old they steal all his gold and make him a slave oh gosh ship um and he's like yeah this is my first lesson is like not to tell anybody that you have gold (laughs) (laughs) but mostly like he's he's very worldly and and very perceptive and all then has a way of like kind of making the best of any situation in a way that is sometimes impressive and fun. And sometimes just like, like his his dad ends up enslaved in this unassailable castle that every other character in the book is just begging him not to go to. Mm. And at a certain point, 
like when one of these things was happening, I wrote a note in my Kindle book that was just like, yeah, but I know that's really bad, but I'm sure the invincible Kripachard <laughs> will find a way to get in there and make it look super easy. Well, like it's just anything he puts his hand to, he kind of succeeds at, which is not always satisfying. Yeah, but knowing that I, I can, yes, I, I can, as a modern reader, I would probably find that not as satisfying either. I can see the connection though to like pulp adventure stories where you know similar to when we were talking about hardy boys like a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago whenever that was like uh, time doesn't mean anything. time doesn't mean anything anymore um that like the the story you're describing is like what if he made this character and then wrote a bunch of uh, like historical adventure novels set in the 12th century but oh he decided to put them all together into one book mm-hmm. so like the way that that character the character isn't going to like grow because of their relationship to different people that they care about and mistakes they make like the character grows by going to a bunch of different places and the reader amassing like a knowledge of what they've seen and done and yeah that's pretty much exactly what happens so the book like he he escapes from this slavery by outsmarting the idiot boat captain like okay. he he realizes pretty early on that the the people steering this boat which they've clearly stolen from somebody else like don't really know a lot about sailing so they're always kind of sticking close to shore they don't take good advantage of the wind like they they are obviously amateurs mm. and he since he has a pirate dad knows <laughs> about this kind of thing and so pretty early is able to like there's this one bit where all the all the bad guys get super drunk and pass out and the ship just drifts out of sight of land. And Matt is like, well, Hey, if you unchain me, like I'll help you, I'll help you get back and I'll just like steer your stuff. And so this is, this kind of illustrates how he is always looking for and then finding these opportunities to get himself out of pickles. Okay. You know? Okay. (laughs) So he gets off this ship, he tricks everybody, gets some money and he's in Muslim Spain. And so that's where the first bit of the book is is taking place is in Spain. We also travel to Brittany. Um, we travel to France, Kiev, and uh, Byzantium slash Constantinople slash modern day Istanbul. Okay. Um, the book interestingly refers to it as Byzantium a lot, even though like 12th century it would have been firmly Constantinople because yes. Constantine's like third or fourth century, I think. Yeah. Um. um I. Uh... Yeah, no, he he's he's pretty early. Yeah. He's earlier than you think he is. No, I'm just thinking about the naming of the of the city. That's all. Um, um, but whatever. Yeah. So yeah, and in each of these places, there's kind of a mini arc that happens. And part of my like, as I was reading it, part of my frustration with it was all of these arcs sort of follow a general shape. Is is typically. Matt shows up to a new place. He has no friends. He has nothing to his name except his like natural skills in his mind. Like a couple different times in the book, he's like, you know, people can take all your possessions, but they can't take your knowledge. And so that's why knowledge okay. is important to me. Um, so he, he arrives in town. He manages to find some new thing that he can do to help get himself out of his like poverty situation he manages to befriend some powerful people, befriend some relatively powerless people, but to make 
uh, to instantly make a mortal enemy of somebody <laughs> who's just powerful enough to cause problems for him. Okay. Often, but not always, by developing an interest in whatever woman this this mm. minor lord is trying to marry. Okay, sure. Um, so Matt makes this makes these women fall in love with him. He fights these lordlings to the death, usually, <laughs> but he then is backed into a corner and moves on, and the cycle begins anew. So this happens fully like three or four times. Great, okay, this, pretty much this exact arc, and there are even like two different fight se- fight sequences where he's fighting some lord. And he has an opportunity like right away to get in and just kill them. But he thinks, no, not like this. Like you have to, you have to suffer first or like this is, wouldn't be satisfying. And there are like ulterior motives for doing that. Like sure. the, the one, the one fight he's like killing the guy who, who like attacked his dad and, and made his dad's life bad. And then the second one, he's trying to buy some of his friends some time to get away from like basically a Mongol horde. <laughs> okay. But yeah, they're just they're these little like repeating loops of story and you recognize them as you're reading and especially like and and some of this comes from just like reading a a long book on a deadline for a for a weekly book podcast. Sure, sure. But it's like, hmm, dude, did we have to do this loop again? Like what what purpose really is this serving except to drive home stuff we kind of already knew about this character? Yeah, so then what what changes between the loops like if it if matt's not changing or the or the dramatic beats aren't changing like what about the setting i guess is is changing or is is at least meant to be interesting to the reader i mean what's what's changing around him is the locations Mm -hmm. and so lamore goes to a lot of pains to not only describe what the cities like feel like but also to just go on these little asides about like the history of the region or like Matt read something in a book about how this region was like 200 years ago. And this is how it's different now. Like, uh, Lamore's research is pretty evident in those sections. And then also, um, different occupations that Matt is doing. And then like different people around Matt and then the other characters around him, like sometimes it's just like friends who he makes, like when he's hanging out with, with the, with the, a merchant or he's like befriending an actual like Byzantine empire, an emperor, <laughs> like an actual <laughs> historical figure. Um, yeah. And then I, I don't know, like, like there, there are some characters who stick out, but most of them, I don't know. They, they come up again and again, but you don't get a, you, you don't get a clear enough sense of anybody other than Matt. Okay. To really get super attached to to most of that, them. that to me, like, even the women are are kind of interchangeable to a to a degree. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we have like, I don't know. I'm getting a lot of resonances to like your James Bonds and stuff, where like the emotional weight that happens in some of those movies or books comes when he's interacting with characters that have been around for multiple stories, not necessarily because of the interactions within those stories and so for Mm -hmm. you to like a couple of times be like yeah he goes to these places and he meets people but like they don't change him or affect him in any way like that to me seems the linchpin of like this is really rooted in pulp pulpier adventure fiction it's not to say that they totally don't change him but 
something I did find a little frustrating is that his sense of his own like self-worth and his own like ingenuity and his ability to get himself out of anything is unfailing like 90% of the time probably. And is it there from the and it's there from the beginning of the book too, right? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, like like as soon as he manages to get free of those shackles on that ship, he is like he he doesn't make no mistakes, but he is usually acting in like full confidence that he can get himself out of most scrapes. Okay. So where do you want to hit next? Because I'm certainly interested in just what it's like to read a book set in the 12th century. Um, is that what kind of brought you around on this thing? What kind of helped you grok this book? I mean, I, I guess one thing that helped me, because I guess like starting out, it seems like an adventure story, you know, like like maybe a there and back again thing mm-hmm. or like... You know, he has to go save his dad, and this is the overarching quest. So you think that the book is going to point at that quest more directly and then oh, okay. get there. But to read, so around like halfway, maybe like halfway or two thirds of the way through the book, I was really not feeling it, as I think I communicated to you a couple yeah, times. Yeah. Like I, I wasn't not enjoying it. I just wasn't, I didn't get it really where where was matt at that point like what did what had or had not happened in the book around that point i mean i think we were just we were just kind of repeating another cycle like for most of the middle of the book he's part of this um this band of merchants or it's it's not all merchants but it's like a a merchant group and any like a merchant group in this time and this society is going to need a sizable complement of like soldiers to protect them and like entertainers to do other stuff to like draw people into, to buy stuff in the first place. And that's where the, the book gets its, its title is there is a, there is a drum that is beat as part of this, you know, a walking drum Uh. that is beat to like keep time while, while these folks all travel. And that's where the book gets its name. Okay. Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> so he's in like he's in like a second or third loop. He's yeah, with he's just kind of, of doing this, and it's like he's and he's he's found a couple women, and he said he loves them, and he makes vague promises to like come back for them, but then he doesn't. And so by the time you get to like the third or fourth woman, he does this to, when like the third or fourth like location that he's been to, without making any super obvious progress toward what you think the goal of the book is okay okay like that's kind of where i i was getting a little bit frustrated and and his eternal self-confidence for me sort of flattened out the peaks and valleys of a normal adventure story where you have your triumphs and you have your low points like if you're just thinking about like classic lord of the rings stuff think about like how dire that stretch like right before Rivendell feels mm-hmm, in fellowship. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then like what a relief it is to hang out in Rivendell for a couple <laughs> chapters, you know? Well, yeah. And also think about how like so many of these types of serialized stories that we are now pretty familiar with, even like TV comic book, I'm thinking like Adam West, Batman kind of stuff. Like those, those stories are not super long for a reason. Like a problem is presented, a problem is solved, and then it's like tune in next week, same Matt time, same Matt channel. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> 
How long ago did you know you were going to make that joke? Actually, two seconds. Like, the, the second I said Adam List. <laughs> okay, great. I didn't know if that was premeditated. Because it did, like, it makes a difference on how you're going to be sentenced in comedy court. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, had it maybe at that point in time, the the style had worn out its welcome a little bit. Just, yeah, just a little bit. Like it was, it was like eating, like if you, I don't know if you eat like a really good bowl of cereal, but you like poured yourself too much mm. and you're getting toward the bottom of it and you don't want to like waste it, but you've, boy, you've eaten a lot of that cereal <laughs> and it's just tasted the same every time and it's getting a little soggy. And I, yeah. Just, like, see, cereal for me, you're eating all that cereal, cereal can get worse. Like cereal, that that's like set a timer on a meal before it gets real bad. Yeah, it's like, like when the milk hits the cereal, you got like five minutes. It's just like when you get ice cream out of the freezer yep. at the grocery store. It's like the game is on. I have to get out of here now. The on is on. <laughs> so then, what turned it around? What brought you home on this guy? So I, I just I wanted to do normally I don't do a lot of like author research or anything beforehand like if I if I don't know who the author is Same. and sometimes for Patreon books like frankly we can get some stuff that is like it's just not that well known like it, it's a book that means a lot of a lot to the person who recommended it but it's not something that has a lot of recognition so I, I was kind of wondering if that's what this was and then i looked up lamore and it's like oh he's this established guy and he wrote like a hundred books and he is like a well-recognized author but to to learn about to to learn that the book is meant to be viewed more as like a western or like a you know a, a frontier book for like lack of a better word sure made the arcs of it make a lot more sense and then reading hannah's um her enjoyment of the books delightfully for flawed protagonist just like knowing that somebody who loves and has a deep personal relationship with this book also sometimes finds matt a little sure sure flawed or frustrating like those two things helped me just like understand it more. And then in understanding it more, I could like it a little bit more. And it helps that in like the last quarter of it or the last fifth of it, like you do start to zero in on the dad subplot a little bit more. Okay. Um, Does that have like, is it mostly just like plot mechanisms? Like we're going to solve, we're going to save this guy or are there like thematic is there thematic weight to what's happening where he's like going to save his dad or any, is he thinking about his dad while he's traveling around? He, yeah, he is thinking about his dad while he's traveling around. It's just the, the, the periodic reminders of that larger quest are what ties all the little stories together. Okay. So like it's, it's the big arc in all these mini arcs, even if most of the mini arcs don't really move it forward all that much. Like, sure. like mostly it's just like slowly he is amassing information and meeting people who will help him achieve his goal? Yeah, I'm just thinking. Of, I'm just thinking of all um, sorts of serialized, and now I'm thinking about Quantum Leap for some reason. I don't know. Like, yeah, but like for for some reason, I just got I got stuck in my head what kind of book I thought it was oh, based sure. on sort of a, you know a medievalish like swords and adventure vibe, and then to to just like step back a little bit and think about the book in a different context made me understand it and enjoy it a little bit more than i had been okay okay um i don't know like what else i want to know about it as a novel set in the 12th century so like 
I found, thank you, Wikipedia. It's a trusted resource for all things knowledge. Um, that at this period of time when the book is set, we are in the high middle ages. Nice. Um, mm. And which is around from like 1000 to 1250 uh, uh, CE. And we're like laying the groundwork for the European Renaissance. Um, the barbarian invasions had stopped a couple hundred years earlier. Um, you mentioned Byzantium, like the Byzantine Empire is winding down. Um, Constantinople is likely the most populous city. Um, the Catholic Church is pretty powerful. Um, and we are like only a few hundred years away from like a couple of big issues that like like a big plague and some climate change and some st like political stability stuff that breaks down. Um, I did find a couple little uh, technological nuggets. And so I don't know if there are any more in this book that are interesting. Sure. Go for it. Yeah. There, there is at least one, there's one big one toward the end. And then I think there are other <laughs> small ones. But, uh, yeah. Apparently Europe had recently gotten blast furnaces for the first time for making nice. cast iron um, from uh, China in the 12th century. Um, Alexander Neckham is the first dude to document the Mariner's Compass, also a Chinese invention. Um, and Iceland had recently rolled out fire and plague insurance, which I just <laughs> thought, that's a thing that you might need. Plague insurance. What do you do when you get plague insurance and everyone at your insurer's office dies of the plague? Oh, no. Like, that's got to be a real worry, you know? Do you think plague insurance is for people or for, like, your cows? How do you do? You, how do you mean? Well, Can cows catch people plague. Well, that I don't. I have no idea how. I mean, I know work. the plague originally came from like rats, rats that got bit yeah. by fleas. Yes, but I don't know if cows can get it. But I just mean like, is it because your business was ruined, or because like your like your relatives died of the plague? Like, what are you actually Honestly, insuring with plague insurance? I don't know. You like, you're the one who brought this fact up, I so I feel like you, it's a little unfair. Want you to of you think to it be through like, with me. I don't know. I just, I think there are so many things I'd be worried about other than insuring anything from anything. <laughs> I just, it just doesn't seem like if I, if I bought insurance and the company didn't want to pay out, like who do I go to for recourse? Like the, the Lord, the yeah. Lord of the local fiefdom. Like he doesn't care about me. No, he does not. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. What, what about this book? Um, stands out to you as being the historical novel that it is aside from just like the places where this dude goes the fact that you mentioned a couple inventions from china drives home a lot of what uh what lamore is is trying to do i think which is which is kind of deflating the idea and this feels relevant in this day and age like deflating this idea that that Europeans developed the only worthwhile culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also highlighting the extent to which basic stuff like bathing was implemented <laughs> from Muslim countries. Yep. Um, the the invention toward the end of the book that I want to that I wanted to bring up that I mentioned before was um, Krubuchar uses um, basically dynamite. Okay. To blow open a door so he and his dad can escape. And that's like a, a Chinese invention that he like read about in a book. And he didn't even know 
that it was that it was gonna work. But yeah, it's like some gunpowder MacGyver and, and, moment. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like stick stuck in a pipe, <laughs> like a like a length of pipe with a fuse on it. Okay, and yeah, it's it's very MacGyver. But um, Lamore has a lot. Like he he badmouths Christianity and like and and, and I don't think he necessarily intends it to be a commentary on the modern day version of the religion, but certainly on the 12th century version of the religion and like the, the condition of people like living in regions where this religion was like widely practiced or where the church held like particular sway. Yeah. You're cr- um, cause you, you mentioned that the, the church was sort of at a high yeah. mm-hmm. ebb mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. And so it sounds like he's, you know, you're it's, not the critique necessarily of the of the belief system, but perhaps the uh, hip the like uh, the people carrying out the the people yeah. like implementing the belief system. The, I guess the logic gap between the belief system and the institution, like actually enacting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like what is he saying? So he's saying things like in Christianity I found much good but judging by its effect upon the lands in which they were supreme the Muslim religion seemed the most successful yet it might not always be so so there's a little bit of foreshadowing there Um, it was said there were 50,000 fine dwellings in Cordoba and as many lesser ones there were 700 mosques where the faithful worshipped and 900 public baths and this at a time when Christians forbade bathing as a heathen custom when monks and nuns boasted of their filthiness as evidence of sanctity (laughs) One nun of the time boasted at the age of 60 she had washed no part of her body but her fingertips when going to take the mass. Oh, the dirty nun! That nun is dirty. so is smelly. She smells nun. so bad. <laughs> what do you th- This is why this was the dark. This was not the Middle Ages. That We were not bathing? This is the dark ages. <laughs> oh, no. It's the dirty ages. The dirty. <laughs> <laughs> the gross age but yeah just something and he he mentions you know that that thing that i read from the from the afterward like that's that is one element of lamore's agenda to the extent that he has one is just to counter the like eurocentrism and the like christianity centrism mm-hmm. of a lot of western literature i think it's just just to say have you have you considered bathing that's a thing (laughs) that muslims invented well also like have you what if like have you gone there it just sounds like there's a little bit of even uh an anthony bourdain like let me just go there and there are people they live the wider my knowledge became the more i realized my ignorance it is only the ignorant who can be positive only the ignorant who can be, become fanatics for the more i learned the more i became aware that there are shadings and relationships in all things in knowledge lay not only power but freedom from fear for generally speaking one only fears what one does not understand hmm. Um, it was a time when all knowledge lay open to him who would seek it, and a physician was often an astronomer, a geographer, a philosopher, and a mathematician. There were several hundred volumes in the library of, uh, man, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, <laughs> these books I read from and studied. So, like, that kind of exposes my own personal ignorance <laughs> sure. on how to pronounce anything. But, um, okay. that's I think that's the the book at its best is... 
um, Lamore through Matt, like laying down little truisms about like expanding your horizons. Many things are not done simply because they are not attempted Mm. is a thing that he says. And that made me think of our podcast when we've like landed guest hosts and stuff just yeah. by like asking and then being surprised that they were cool with, mm-hmm. with doing it. Or <laughs> it's like a lot, of, you know, you don't, you don't, anything you don't try to do, like, like of course you're not. hundred percent of the shots you don't take, you miss them. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky. Probably. Probably. Michael ain't, Jordan. Ain't no rules as a dog can't play basketball. Mm-hmm. Wayne Gretzky. Probably. Winston Churchill. <laughs> Were there any... Um, and then, oh, oh, then, then there's another... Um, Christianity, for which my father had the greatest respect, had discarded much that was good along with the bad. The bads had been symbols of paganism, so bads and bathing were condemned. And few people bathed in Europe for nearly a thousand years. Books had been thrown out on the theory that if they repeated what the Bible said, they were unnecessary. And if they said what was not in the Bible, they were untrue. So that, as my... like my background in the classics i like I, I learn about that kind of stuff when you run into history books that like just don't exist anymore yeah. or even books like some of our primary or close to primary sources on like say the entire like height of the roman empire come from books that we just don't have all of because they didn't survive and a lot of like statues, a lot of books, a lot of just a lot of stuff didn't exist because um, because Christianity sort of like it, it absorbed what it could and then wiped out what it couldn't in a lot of cases. Yeah. And again, that's not to it's not a value judgment about the, the religion as like modern day people practice it necessarily. But. That's pa- that's that's institutions of power in general, like gov- you yeah, know, uh, governments and theocracies have been doing that for ages. Just it's like just... his- a history has been written by the victors, yes. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. Do any and then where and where where Matt is at his his most frustrating, I think, is just with <laughs> with when he's looking at women or thinking about women. Yeah, it's how, that's why I brought up James Bond earlier because it does sound like he's just like rolling into town, going like, "Who's horny? Like who's who down? Wa- who who's wants to have? Who? <laughs> is that? Do those? It's just like like he's so he's arrived in a new city and. He is talking about like one of he he is made friends with this woman who is sort of sheltering him and he doesn't really have a romantic interest in her. But here's but he did. I mean, he does notice that her body is well shaped and that she's okay. beautiful, of course. Sure. Um, the fact that our relations remained as simple as they were was in part due to the daughter of an innkeeper near where I lived. We had passed each other on the street occasionally, never speaking, but mutually aware. She was a full-bosomed lass with dark Moorish eyes ringed with black lashes. And as I have said, we often passed each other. And then there was a day when we did not pass. Uh, Is the mic picking up how I'm waggling my eyebrows? Yeah, I've got my volume turned all the way up. I can hear it. Women have treated me well, bless their souls, and it has occurred to me that a man need know but two senses to survive. The first to ask for food, and the second to tell a woman he loves her. Yo! If he must dispense with one or the other, by all means, let it be the first. For surely if you tell a woman you love her, she will feed you. (laughs) What? (laughs) What is this, like, 12th century pickup artist stuff that he's doing? (laughs) Like, yeah, so there's... There is... That stuff, and then there is one 
passage, just like one paragraph in particular that I think crystallizes a bit of why I find his like effortless success in every scenario a little frustrating. Okay, okay. He uh, he says up to a point, a man's life is shaped by environment, heredity and movements and changes in the world about him. Then there comes a time when it lies within his grasp to shape the clay of his life into the sort of thing he wishes to be. Only the weak blame parents, their race, their times, lack of good fortune or the quirks of fate. Everyone has it within his power to say this. I am today that I shall be tomorrow. The wish, however, must be implemented by deeds. Yeah, I'd read reference to Lamour's like social Darwinism like in some yeah so that yeah that that is very um i guess i mean i guess like libertarian a little bit or or it's definitely like it fits a couple different frameworks yeah yeah. reagan era republicanism maybe but um but yeah to to acknowledge that yeah like environment does shape some things but really the only thing keeping unsuccessful people from succeeding is the fact that they aren't taking their you know taking the bull by the horns and just deciding to succeed it's the secret is what it is it is the secret but but like that kind of thing rubbed me a little the wrong way yeah well and it's interesting to encounter that in historical fiction which in my impression is is really it can sometimes be really good at um talking about systems and like Mm -hmm. what like the fact that he is both critiquing the church, the contemporaneous church and what it was doing to people, um, yet also being like, yeah, but really it's on our it's on us if we if we don't do something about it. Like, well, and then and then to throw some more complication into it, he like just before that passage I just read. Um, great families were often founded by pirates, freebooters, or energetic peasants who happened to be in the right place at the right time and took advantage of it. The founder would, in most cases, look with disdain on his descendants. So simultaneously, you're pushing this this view that like your life is what you make of it, uh-huh. regardless of your other circumstances, but also people who coast on their family's reputation also suck. Yes. So like, that's two different <laughs> viewpoints that I think we'd sort of view as opposite when maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. I no, I, I think that's, that's really a fascinating point. Yeah. I don't know. Like maybe, if, maybe if, if the poor are only poor because they aren't trying hard enough not to be poor, like maybe the rich should have to be trying to <laughs> hold on to their be, riches. Yeah. If, more yeah if the if the score really does get reset every time a baby is born maybe we should make sure that applies <laughs> to everybody maybe well. we should make sure that everybody has the same game genie codes <laughs> yeah this is oh man i'm fascinated by this i yeah, can't so that, unpack I mean, that, it hmm. that's all i have to to talk about really is just I ended up like by the time I finished the book, I appreciated it a lot more than I felt like I was going to just like a couple of days before, which is really a relief when you have to like get on a podcast and talk about a book for an hour. Sure. sure. <laughs> Especially a book that somebody has given you money to talk about and said that it's one of their favorite books of all time. Yes. So yeah, I, I, I came around to enjoying it. And if nothing else, like even if you, even if the bits that you're frustrated by, um, are what you like walk away from the book with primarily like you cannot say 
that it doesn't give you anything to think about. Like there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I'm glad that we were both able to explore a little of what Lamore was up to and that style of book and his interest in history. And also we don't always get a book that gives one of us this like experience where it's like, mm-hmm. mm, I don't know about this. Oh, now that I know more about it. Yeah. Okay. Like that's not always an arc that we get to get to really unpack. So um, without even trying, I kind of inadvertently quoted a bit of the book, which is like I like I mentioned, like full of little truisms. But um, reading without thinking is as nothing for a book is less important for what it says than for what it makes you think. So on that count, I guess, Louis L'Amour, you did it. Yeah. You made me think things. Yeah, that's good. You may, and by extension, you made Craig and all of our listeners think things. Happy thinking, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> if you've thought something about this podcast and want to tell us, <laughs> oh, no. you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up online on social media while oh, we still mine, endure it. <laughs> At facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. A bunch of folks reached out in the past week, including Wendy, Marita, Grace, Josie, Laura, Kelly, uh, Allegra, Aaron, Lizzie, Gloria, Emily, Barb, Jason, Chris, and Joshua. Thanks so much. Um, it helps us know what you like about the show and what you're up to and, and know how some of you are finding the show. So that's cool. Andrew, folks want to know more about our show. Where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there on that internet website, we have a bunch of links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We posted our September schedule recently, so go check that out. Um, We also have a link to our Patreon project. That's Patreon.com slash OverduePod. You can give us a little bit of money to uh, make us read a book that that you want us to read like Hannah did. Uh, Thanks again, Hannah, for... uh, recommending this and sorry that we took a little bit of time to get around to it we will get around to everything eventually it's just a very long list um and then we also have a new listener page so if you're trying to introduce a new person to the show that is a page which admittedly we need to update like pretty badly of uh episodes that we think are particularly good or like really um show off what we're trying to do here to the extent that any of this is planned (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, Craig, what are you reading next week? Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Ooh, a big one. It's very big. It's a big one. It's a big one. And then after that, we're reading Twilight New Moon by Stephanie Meyer. So just like get hype about that. Um, That's thank it. you, everybody, for your continued support and for listening. And until we see you next Monday, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.